Well, thanks for joining us. Once again, we're going to take a look at some more uh, of the quote-unquote facts that are out there. As a student once said, is everything always been a lie? And so the question now is, how many more lies are there? Before we get started, if you are enjoying what we're putting out there, please make sure you click that like button. Please make sure you subscribe. And if you're on your devices, go ahead and click that alert button. It's going to help us out with the uh, algorithms. And so we go with 10 more quote-unquote facts about the body that aren't quite true. Warning. The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard or believed to be true about how the human body works and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy. So fact one of the next set of 10. Type 2 diabetes occurs because of too much sugar in the diet. Actually, type 2 diabetes is not about overconsuming sugar, even though that's how it usually is referenced in an attempt to discourage quote-unquote poor eating habits or consuming of bad food. But type 2 diabetes actually comes from a combination of various signals that keeps the body from properly using glucose. And it's that improper use of glucose that causes the high blood glucose that is linked with type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes, the glucose levels in the blood, is a symptom of a larger scale inflammatory issue and stress issue that leads to metabolic inflexibility, improper response to various hormones, including insulin and leptin, that leads to elevated levels of glucose, all due to accumulation of fat mass, in particular visceral fat mass, and a constant state of inflammation. It is not about how much sugar one consumes even though there is a linkage between some types of sugar consumption, in particular fructose sugar consumption, and fat accumulation. However, that is not linked with visceral fat accumulation, independent of other inflammatory signals. Fact two, osteoporosis is a bone loss disease that only affects women after menopause. Actually, osteoporosis comes from lower bone development throughout life. And we have to remember that the rate of loss that we see is going to be proportional to the bone mineral density at the time of loss, where when I have very low bone mineral density, I will tend to lose what bone I have faster than when I have high bone mineral density. And since I have low bone mineral density, I'm going to have faster bone loss later in life, leading to more brittle bones. We tend to think about this as being a female disease, but it can occur in males too, but we tend to only look at it in females, and in particular in postmenopausal females. The greatest impact on bone health and bone mineral density is how much we use the bone, how much load we place on the bone, more than the hormones associated with being male or being female. There is an association between bone loss in females and postmenopausal age, but that is more about accumulation of ROS than it is about the hormones associated with being female. Fact three, having a poor attention span or being forgetful means having ADHD. You can toss in there, not being able to sit quietly. Actually, to be diagnosed with ADHD, you need to show at least six symptoms for more than six months. And what are some of those symptoms? Things like fidgeting, being unable to sit quietly, feeling restless, being excessively loud or noisy, talking excessively, blurting out answers, acting without thinking, having difficulty waiting for your turn, having poor attention, 
particularly to the details that leads to making careless mistakes, having difficulty sustaining attention, having difficulty being organized, having an inability to follow through, becoming sidetracked quite easily, being forgetful about some of your daily activities, avoiding things that require a sustained mental effort. Fact four, smarter people have larger brains than the average person. While there is a correlation across animals about brain size and intelligence, where larger-brained animals tend to be more intelligent than smaller-brained animals, and this is a relationship between brain size and neuron density relative to body mass, and we see a correlation between the size of a person's skull and their brain, it is not an indication of, of how smart they are. Smarter individuals have larger neurons and are denser in certain areas of the brain due to increased activity of the neurons, which leads to greater gyruses and greater axon connections, bigger folds taking place within the brain that allows for the neurons to stay connected with each other and to increase the connections between neurons. The bigger gyruses, the more dense areas, does not mean a bigger brain. In fact, if the brain is too big, it could actually lead to an inefficient network of neurons due to having too many neurons having to connect with each other. We want to make sure that we have the correct number of neurons interconnecting with each other to allow for an efficient network of neurons to allow for fast communication with increased numbers of connections between those neurons, not more neurons. The more neurons we have being connected will slow down the rate by which the neurons are able to communicate and the processing that takes place with that neuron communication, which means that smarter individuals have more efficient brains, have denser brains in certain areas of the brain than the average person, but not a bigger brain. Back five. Eating more calories than you burn means gaining weight and becoming fat. Actually, there's no weight to a calorie. And because there's no weight to a calorie, we can't use that in terms of leading to a gain or a loss of weight. That idea comes from a poor association of the energy in the foods that we consume, not the nutrients that are being consumed as a means to determine weight gain or weight loss. As the nutrients that are consumed will determine what type of metabolism I'll be able to do. It will determine what tissues will be growing and what tissues will be shrinking based on my nutrient balance. Weight gain and weight loss comes from an intricate interaction of various factors, including hormones, nutrient balance, environmental stress, and metabolic or endocrine disruptors that are found within some of the foods that we eat. Fact six, you can only absorb up to 30 grams of protein from a meal. Actually, based on how well you digest the proteins, there's no real limit to how much protein you can absorb within a meal. But if we look at maximums as relates to tissue growth, we do have a maximum of about 0.55 grams per kilogram of body mass or 0.24 grams per pound of body mass. So what's this mean in terms of application? If I'm a 120 pound person, about 54, 55 kilograms, that equates to about 29 grams of protein in a meal. That would be my maximum upper limit 
if I want to grow or have protein available for growth, in particular muscle growth. If I'm a 150 pound person, about 68 kilograms, that equates to about 38 grams within the meal. If I'm 200 pounds, that's about 90, 91 kilograms. That's going to equate to about 50 grams within the meal as a maximum limit if I'm looking at establishing skeletal muscle or tissue growth. But that's only related to the tissue growth aspect of nutrition and metabolism. We use proteins for other things and are involved in other things beyond just the growth factors that will come into play in terms of nutrition derived growth factors, stimulating muscle growth within the response to exercise. And so when we think about it, there's no real true limit to what I can absorb in terms of the amount of materials that are within the food I'm eating, as long as I'm able to digest it down and give myself enough time to absorb it. The harder it is to digest the material, the longer it takes to digest the material, the less likely I am to be able to absorb those materials within the intestines, within the alimentary canal. But that 30 grams of protein as a maximum amount within a, within a meal is not as true as we think it might be. Fact seven, being male means having testosterone and being female means having estrogen. Actually, both males and females have testosterone and estrogen. And that's because testosterone and estrogen are going to come from a process known as steroidogenesis, making of steroids. And the making of steroids within the human body and within most mammals comes about through a process in which any of the steroid hormones can become any of the other steroid hormones. Testosterone can get converted into estrogen. It's one of the things that happens within the ovaries for females, leading to the production of testosterone. Testosterone can get converted into estrogen. It's one of the things that happens when we look at issues of hypogonadalism in males who are overfat. It's also involved within some of the regulatory processes within reproductive physiology for the male. Males and females will use both estrogen and testosterone in terms of having a regulatory effect on their reproductive and metabolic physiological processes. Just because I have testosterone in circulation is not an indication of being male. Just because I have estrogen in circulation is not an indication of being female. You will see both estrogen and testosterone in circulation for both males and females. Fact eight, you need to do, quote, cardio exercise, end quote, to improve heart health. Well, actually, any type of exercise or any type of physical activity should be considered to be, quote, cardio, end quote, because any change in how blood moves around the body is going to cause changes in how the heart functions. And changes in the heart function will lead to changes in heart health. It's not about doing the sustained exercise, the endurance exercise, in terms of improving of cardiac functions. There is some evidence to stipulate that what we think about in terms of weight training or resistance training may actually have a larger benefit to cardiovascular health than what we see with what we traditionally think of as cardio exercise. What's really interesting is that changes that we see within blood flow leads to changes of volume being moved by the heart, which changes the relationship between how many beats the heart has to make, what the heart rate happens to be per minute, in order to maintain a stable cardiac output, blood flow total per minute and per hour of the day, where increases in volume movement per beat leads to a reduction in heart rate in order to maintain a stable cardiac output. The more active I am, 
I actually see an anatomical change in the heart, an elongation of the heart that allows for greater fill and greater ejection of blood, allowing for increase in stroke volume, blood moved per beat, and thus leading to a reduced heart rate at rest and during less than maximal exercise. It will also allow for a higher maximal heart rate relative to my age predicted maximal heart rate when doing maximal or near maximal exercise. And once again, it doesn't matter what type of exercise or what type of physical activity I'm doing, as long as I'm doing exercise or physical activity. Fact nine, consuming processed sugar makes kids hyperactive. Actually, the kid is just acting like a kid. We want to associate something that the kid is doing for the reasons for the kid's behavior. But sometimes we just have to sit back and remember, kids will be kids and kids will act like kids. What we're doing is we're associating the consumption of the processed sugar with the hyperactivity through a post hoc fallacy. We're making a logical fallacy in our conclusion. While processed sugars may cause a quote-unquote sugar high, and the sugar high is associated with changes in dopamine within the reward centers of the brain, leading to an increased likelihood for consuming processed sugars, particularly if it is within the bliss point of consuming of foods, it is not going to cause hyperactivity in the child. Fact 10. Diet and exercise allows you to turn fat into muscle. Actually, fat and muscle come from two different types of tissues that cannot change between each other. It's a process known as differentiation and specialization, in which we get different types of tissues and different types of cells within those different types of tissues coming about through developmental processes. Once we've reached the point of specialization as a cell within a tissue, we cannot convert to any other type of cell or any other type of tissue. What we're doing when we make that statement about fat and muscle converting between each other is referencing the loss that we see in fat mass and fat volume relative to the gain that we see in muscle mass or muscle volume. But we cannot change between the two tissue types. Well, thanks for watching the quick video or listening to it on the podcast. Let us know which fact that you found most interesting. Are there other facts that you have questions about? Drop it in the comments. Let us know. Once again, please make sure you click that like, click that subscribe. And if you're on your devices, click that alert button to know more putting out new information. Please make sure to follow us on all of the media platforms.